Our scripture this morning is Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Thank you. How are you all this morning? Yesterday was a bit warm, wasn't it? Was that the hottest day of the year? About 100? How many feel that Boise is hot these days in the summer? Raise your hand. Well, we came here from the Middle East, from a hot part of the Middle East, And on our dashboard, there's a reading of the exterior temperature. And just before moving here, you want to know what it read? 122. So Monica and I are enjoying the nice, cool, breezy (laughs) environment here in the Treasure Valley. Biggest problem is that sometimes we have to wear a sweater. Monica is one of the few people right now wearing long sleeve. Well, let's jump into our passage. Paul says, first of all, finally, brethren... It's kind of ironic, though. He goes on for two more chapters. (laughs) You know, when a preacher says, finally, in this sermon, what do we do? We sort of subconsciously think, okay, it's about over now. Then I need to think of the next hymn. And then I need to see Bob in the foyer afterwards. And then I think we're going to go to Elmer's for lunch. Although it's not called Elmer's anymore, is it? Uh, Whatever. Reminds me that several years ago, I was at this conference with many Arab pastors. And uh, one brother was up there and he was giving a message. And there was translation from Arabic to English. This brother was going on a bit long. And at some point there was a pause. And he goes on and the translator said, and finally. But the place erupted in laughter. Because that's not what the actual preacher said. (laughs) Then Paul says, well, for me to write these same things to you is no trouble and it's really good for you. It's It's a safeguard for you. What does he mean? Paul anticipated that people would say, Paul, you're going to go into this stuff again? We've heard it before, the stuff about righteousness by faith. We've heard it. And, you know, there's a danger in these subjects. Uh, I, can, I know what you're thinking right now. See, I, I can see the wheels turning. It's, this is a magic pulpit, and I can see what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, I've been a cold community church for X years, 
and I've heard about 500 sermons on salvation by grace. So are we going to do that again, Dan? We've heard it before. We've been there. We've done that. We got the t-shirt. And so hopefully, though, we're going to come at these things maybe from a couple different angles this morning. But Paul is talking about how do we achieve a righteousness of God. In other places, he talks about having the salvation from God or being saved. Well, those are good biblical words and we should use them. However, whenever we do talk about churchy kind of words or use those words, we, we really need to put them in, in real life terms so that we don't just kind of have a you know, church side of the brain that doesn't connect with reality. What does it mean to be saved? Well, the, the word saved, of course, means to be rescued. As human beings, we need to be rescued. See, the Bible describes that all people come into this life with a basic hostility toward God. We're not right with God, you know, out of the birth canal. We, 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 and we go through life and we, we have this tension with God and we're not right with God. And so when Paul talks about obtaining a righteousness from God, he's talking about how do we get right with God? In other words, this is the biggest question in life. How can I, how can you get right with God? Be in a right relationship where he says, we're, we're, we're fine. You and me are fine. That's what he's talking about here. And the flip side of that question is, how can I be sure that my afterlife is good, that it's positive and not negative? You see, sooner or later, every single person in this room is going to expire. We all die. And I can assure you the moment that your heart stops beating and your electrochemical impulses in your brain stop and your body begins to assume room temperature, you're going to be in the presence of God one way or another. And you're, the next phase, that your life after death begins. Now you may say, well, Dan, there's actually a whole lot of people who don't believe that, who think that as soon as you know, everything shuts down, that's it. It's lights out. There's no more. But I doubt that very many people in this room believe that. I certainly don't. So how can I make sure that, you know, when it's all over, I go to be with the Lord in a very positive situation? That's what Paul is talking about. And then verse 2, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh, an allusion to circumcision. And you would think with these harsh terms that Paul is talking about some Horrible, vicious, ferocious, violent enemies of the gospel, right? You'd be, you know, we might think that, but we'd be wrong. You know who he's talking about? Some Christian leaders. Why would Paul be so harsh talking about other people in the body of Christ? Well, let's be reminded that in the first century, in the early church, the, the church was a Jewish movement. Thousands of Jews in Palestine said, we know Jesus. We saw his miracles. We heard his teaching. We know he went to the cross. We believe he rose from the dead and, and we're following him. We're now the church. And many even Jewish priests became obedient to the faith, Acts 6. But then missionaries went out around the Roman world. And these, these Jewish leaders began to hear there's, there's thousands Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Gentiles, non-Jews, who are flooding into the church. And some of these Jewish leaders were saying, okay, that's probably good, but this is a big problem. 
If they're going to be part of the family of God, then they need to come into Judaism. They need to convert, proselytize into Judaism and, and fully come under the law of Moses. And the key sign of that is circumcision. And so they opposed Paul's message. And there was real tension. But you know, they weren't just opposing Paul. You know, some people say, well, Peter believed one thing, Paul said the other. It's nonsense. There was a council in Jerusalem called the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. And they took up the question, Acts 15, verse 1, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? And the Jerusalem Council came up with a resounding no. Absolutely not. And so these Judaizers who are going around the Mediterranean to these Gentile churches and hounding them with these things, they were wrong. They were not just you know, disagreeing with Paul. They were in defiance to the whole leadership that Jesus has set up, all of the apostles and all of the key elders. Okay? So Paul said, Do, you know, is circumcision or keeping the law of Moses required of, Mo of Gentiles who come to Christ? No. Hell no. Forgive my French, but he, he was talking about these are heaven and hell issues. And so Paul said, in fact, he wrote the same thing to the, uh, to the Galatians, the church in southern Turkey. And he says, if there's so much pushing circumcision on you, let them be cut off. Well, I'm not going to exegete that verse. I'll let you use your imagination. It's uh, good to remember that not everything in the Bible is rated G or even PG-13. <laughs> but Paul, you know, why this huge reaction? Paul realized that the future of the gospel across the world was hanging in the balance. And if these people succeed at getting the message across that you're saved, you get a righteousness from God by keeping the law of Moses, then, then Christ died for nothing. So let's take up this question for a second. How is it that we're made right with God? Because that's, that's largely what this passage talks about. Some other things, but that's largely what this passage talks about. How is it that we receive a righteousness from God? Okay, that, in other words, we are declared right with God, good with God, good to go, you know, things he accepts us fully. Well, religion says, you want to be right with God? You've got to perform. You've got to dress certain ways, eat certain ways. You've got to keep the rules and regulations. There's various rites and rituals that you need to perform, various activities. You know, we just came from the Middle East. All of our local friends were fasting in the holy month of Ramadan. Dear, dear friends, imagine in one of the hottest places on earth during the time of year, which is, you know, right around the longest day of the year, June 22nd, June 21st, from four in the morning till eight o'clock at night, no eating and not even any drinking, not even water and no smoking. So if you're a smoker, it's, it's particularly tough. So there's certain activities you got to do. And, and, you know, we could talk about all the different regulations and all the different requirements that religion puts on people. Religion basically meaning man's attempt to bridge the gap. But we could be talking about Judaism. We could talk about, you know, the Aztecs crawling on broken glass up the temple. You could talk about, you know, Hinduism. What is in Islam? What is in even Catholicism? And what is in Protestantism? Why? Because it's human nature. Human nature just likes to build up all kinds of rules and say, if you want to get up to God, this is the stairs that you've got to climb. Now, again, I can kind of tell what you're thinking up here, magic podium. Think, well, okay, that's those people, but we're immune from that. 
Dan, we're Bible people. We're card-carrying evangelicals or charismatics or whatever, you know. We're, we're you know, Bible-centered church, and you know, we know about salvation by grace, so you don't need to harp on that with us. Really? I think a lot of times if you scratch very deep, we'll find that, where's our confidence? Well, I'm a member of Cole Community Church. I go to these meetings. I'm a part of this Bible study. I know my Bible. I'm involved in these ministry activities. And so when I stand before God, I'm, I'm going to be just fine because of these things. Really? Those are not things that are going to make us stand right before God. It's only by grace. See, you could have all the works of the world, and it's not going to be enough to impress God. It's not going to be enough, in a sense, to get you heaven, to get his full acceptance. You could be Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and Rod Ritchie all rolled into one, <laughs> and all your collective works will not be enough to impress God. Did you know that? I love it when Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, 600 years before Christ. Now, this is a guy really up there with God, right? He's a prophet. He says, you know, I realize that my righteous deeds are as filthy rags. I love that phrase. They're, they're as filthy rags. This is Isaiah. And don't just imagine those rags under the sink in the kitchen that you use occasionally to dab something that you spill on the counter. Imagine rags that... Every day for a year are used to clean the bathroom and the toilet in a gas station. You know, I mean, those, you know, filthy rags. And Isaiah says, that's, that's the, the good things I've done in my life. It's not enough. It's not enough. And beyond that, this legalistic impulse, which is inherent in all of human nature across the world, likes to add more rules, more requirements. I was on Skype a couple days ago with our daughter, Krista, many of you have prayed for Krista and Travis. They're in the bulletin sometimes, uh, gospel workers in North Africa. And she said, we've been working very closely with this brother. His name is, let's call him Hussein. That's not his real brother. But he says, this guy, he's from a Muslim background. He came to the Lord a few years ago, and he's just doing fantastic. He, he's in the word. He's growing like a weed. He's maturing. And he's starting all of these Bible study groups among friends and family, you know, locals um, from the same uh, Muslim background. And these groups are growing. There's some believers. There's some seekers. So he's really doing great. But he made the mistake of going to a Christian conference. And at this conference, there was some pastor from America. And he said, look, there's all these things that are, that are really important in, in following Christ. But the most important is don't get a tattoo. You know, he had some obscure, weird verse from Leviticus or something. I don't know what. Don't get a tattoo. And if you have a tattoo, I don't even know if you're in Christ. So Hussein went back to Travis and said, Travis, I'm so troubled. I'm so confused. I thought I was doing fine, but, you know, I've got these tattoos. Am I not really even in Christ? And, of course, Travis then just gently, patiently took him through the scriptures and said, Look, it's not a matter what, you know, different opinions that people have out there. What does the Bible teach? And it's actually fine that you have tattoos. <laughs> I said, okay. You may be feeling insecure this morning. Maybe you're thinking, okay, I know the Lord, but I, I, you know, I'm actually feeling distant from Him this week. And I'm feeling a bit insecure in my standing before God. And so I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go volunteer at the Boise Rescue Mission in the next six months. Is that going to do it? Well, it might be good to volunteer at the Boise Rescue Mission, but it's not going to make you right with God. What makes us right with God? Only one thing. Jesus, the, 
Son of God, the only one who's lived a perfect life on this planet, said, look, I have taken all of your sin on myself. All of your shame. All of those things that you're terribly embarrassed about that you wish nobody will ever find out. Jesus said, I've taken those on, my, on myself. I shed my blood for you. That paid the price for your sin. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And not only that, not only do you have forgiveness, and God has taken those things away, but God says, I am taking the perfect righteousness of Jesus, His holy standing before God the Father, and I am imputing that to you. So you, if you are in Christ by faith, you are righteous. You have the righteousness of God. You, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. Isn't that wonderful? That's the only way it works. So Paul is saying in Philippians 3, you can't earn this righteousness. You can't work for it. You can't deserve it. You can't buy it. There's only one verb you can do. Receive it. Receive it. You could be Warren Buffett, who recently gave $44 billion to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That won't buy you heaven. So Paul says in, in this passage, I've got this incredible Hebrew pedigree. I've got zeal. I've got this perfect track record of keeping the Torah, the law of Moses. And, and I used to feel really good about myself in my standing before God. And then when I realized the gospel of Christ, I realized, uh-oh, all those things are not in the positive column. They're actually in the negative column. Religion, I thought, was so good, made me standing right before God. But now I realize religion was the enemy. As C.S. Lewis says, religion is the last stronghold of fallen man. And so Paul says, these things, they, not only did they not make me right before God, they actually fed into my pride. And they actually kept me from understanding grace. Let me give an example. A good friend of mine many years ago, was doing some street evangelism with a number of fellow workers on the streets of Beirut. And this was shortly after the cessation of hostilities in the Lebanon Civil War, which was a horrible, horrible, long-lasting civil war, thousands and tens of thousands of, of deaths, probably more actually. And you had Sunni against Shiite, and Shiite against Maronites, and Maronites against other, you know, all these different factions and militias. So they were out there doing street evangelism, which means, you know, some music, some drama, maybe five minutes of preaching, and then kind of go out into the crowd to see who wants to talk. So, so immediately after the, the, they stopped this, this man comes up to Grant and says, I need what you, you're talking about. I desperately need what you're talking about. And Grant says, okay, tell me about it. He says, well, I was in a militia. I was a, a high mujahid in one of, one of the militias. And I've killed a lot of people. And I've tortured people. And he kind of looks down at his shoes, and I even killed children in front of their parents. And Grant said, I just wanted to throw up. I did not want to lead him in a prayer of salvation. I wanted to grab him by the throat and squeeze the life out of this, this person. But he says he knows, he knew, <laughs> That wasn't the right thing to do. And he, and he knew that no one is beyond the grace of God. And he led him 
to understand the gospel, and that day Jesus became that man's Lord and Savior. That's the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about here in Philippians 3. In the 1700s, there was another young man who was from a good family, good upbringing, good education, but he got involved in some horrible things. Kind of like you know we read today of, of people, even from our old town in England, when we lived in England, joining ISIS and getting involved in those horrible brutalities and atrocities in ISIS today. Anyway, in the 1700s, this man got involved in the slave trade. Now, when we think of slavery, we think of some men and women having to do work, uh, not because they're employees, but because they're owned by their slave owners, and they have no choice, and you know, day and night they've got to work, and, and that's all true, and that's terrible, horrible part of our heritage in America and also in Great Britain. But you know, it's worse than that. You know, these slave traders, these ships, they would come particularly along coastal areas of Africa, and they would, you know, by force, you know, with knives and guns and, I mean, everything, they would pull hundreds of people together, and they would say, okay, we've got you now. And they would say, okay, you're going, and you're going, and you go on that ship, and, and children would be ripped from their parents, and husbands and wives separated never again in this life to see each other. And then they would throw them into these slave ships, and, and we've all seen the movies, right? The horrible conditions in the bottom of these slave ships. And only a percentage would survive the trek over to the southern, southwestern United States or the West Indies. And then not only that, you know, so many on the British side of things were, were thrown into these factories, these refineries for sugar, which was at that time a huge part of the British economy. And many of them would die every single year, some even falling into these molten vats of, of sugar as it's being processed. And this young man, when he, when he finally realized He'd come to faith, the enormity of the mercy of God. He took paper and quill and wrote this poem. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a horrible, abysmal wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And John Newton came to understand the reality of what Paul is talking about in Philippians 3. If I were asked to ask you this morning, what are you counting on when it's just you and God? What is your standing before the God of the universe? What is your place in terms of what happens when you die? Are you confident that you have the righteousness of God through faith? Or are you somehow maybe even subconsciously counting on your works, your church membership, your, your whatever? Well, anything less than counting on Righteousness is a free gift. won't work. Hopefully that's what we're counting on. Now, this whole thing about salvation or righteousness from God, by grace, through faith, we've all heard it before, okay, but let's talk about some nuances because I think there are some nuances. If this is all true, does it matter how we live? There's actually a lot of widespread confusion in the church today on this question. Are my efforts to live in a right way, is that somehow legalistic? Does that pull me away from grace? Well, it might, but in fact, how we live is extremely important. We come into the Lord by grace, but then with humility and gratitude, we move forward wanting to please the Lord with how we live. So does how we live matter? Well, you know, you better believe it. Jesus cares about how we live. You should care how you live. 
I bet your husband or your wife, if you're married, they care how you live, your children. I mean, imagine. Does it matter if you're a person of integrity or not? If you're a person of kindness? If you're a person who've, who your, your sex life is in accordance with God's ways? Or maybe you're captured by pornography or, you know, you're, you, you can't go to a staff Christmas party without your spouse worrying about, oh no, is he going to drink too much and end up in the broom closet, you know, uh, and, and families get ripped apart. How we live is extremely important. Are you and I people of love so that when we, you know, we, we were people of love in our neighborhoods and our families and on the job and when we see need, we, we are able to jump in with the love and service of Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Over and over throughout the Gospels, that's a theme. Obedience to Jesus, obedience to the commandments of God. So, again, is this a contradiction with salvation by grace? Of course not. Those, how, if we, our efforts to live right don't save us, but they are important and we follow through in the power of God. I like the way Dallas Willard said it. He says, Grace is not opposed to effort. In other words, effort in trying to live pleasing to God is is a good thing. It is opposed to earning. Grace does not just have to do with forgiveness alone. So we walk in grace, but we live for God, but we count on his his, uh, forgiveness and what he has done. Because the gospel is not spelled D-O, it's spelled D-O-N-E, what Christ has done. Put it another way, religion, and I know the word religion sometimes has positive connotations, but for the most part, you know, it's generally man's efforts um, to bridge the gap before God rather than relying on God. So religion says this, I am accepted because I obey. You know, I've got a shot at being accepted by God because I'm doing these things. Whereas grace, or the gospel says, I obey because I'm accepted. Because I am absolutely secure in my relationship with God, I want to please Him. Imperfectly, but hopefully progressively as we grow. As you can imagine then, motives make all the difference in the world, don't they? Why, you know, from our heart, why are we doing what we're doing? Motives make all the difference in the world. And when I'm doing certain things that are maybe positive things, is it out of pride? Is it out of fear? Is it out of some attempt to create a self-righteousness? Or, hopefully, is it out of a humble heart, dependent on God, wanting to please Him, wanting more and more of Jesus in my daily experience? Motives make all the difference in the world. Many, many years ago, well, I, I was 16 years old, actually, and uh, I was a goody two-shoes from the right side of town. I had lived a pretty sheltered life, uh, which I'm thankful for, actually. You get, you get protected from a lot of junk. But I uh, I'd kind of drifted from the Lord. Then I came back to wanting to, to follow the Lord. And some friends said, look, Dan, I, we would love it if you join us in this Christian coffee house and get involved with us, with this Christian coffee house. It was kind of a Jesus freak thing, you know, it was the early 70s. And I said, okay, that would be great. And this, this coffee house, I was from the right side of the tracks. The coffee house was on the wrong side of the tracks. Many of the kids involved in this thing had been involved in, had really hard lives. And many were, had been delivered by Jesus from drug addiction. And so it was a really good experience for me. And one night we had this speaker 
uh, from a particular flamboyant kind of denomination. I won't say which one. Actually, I appreciate that denomination very much, but I won't say which one. Anyway, he came and he was from Fresno, California, I think. And his hair was perfect. Perfectly coiffed. I'm sure he spent no less than an hour in front of the mirror getting the hair right. Bright shirt, tight bell-bottom pants. It's early 70s, okay? Big, wide, white belt. Matching, shiny shoes. And I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> you know, what's he got to say? And you know what? He began talking, and he said something profound. Isn't, don't you love it when God uses unusual mediums and, to get through to us sometimes? Something profound. He said, kids, I just want to encourage you in the strongest possible way, read the Bible every day. And pray to your Heavenly Father every day. Find some time that makes sense. Take your life you know, before God and pray and read the Bible every day. Then he said, well, okay, not every day. It's not a matter of ticking boxes. We're not being legalistic about this. But just have a sort of consistency in your life, a spiritual discipline. And not again to try to impress God. This isn't going to get you saved. But in order to grow. In order to experience more of the Lord on a regular basis. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? How many vote? No, we won't do that. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Well, if you're doing it in order to try to earn God's love, it's a bad thing. Or if you're doing it in order to just kind of puff yourself up, you know, in some sort of thing, that's, that's a bad thing. But if you're doing it because you're hungry for Jesus and you want that richer experience and communion with him on a daily basis, that's a good thing. And you will indeed grow. What do you do if you find yourself doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Anybody ever have that experience? <laughs> you know, you realize, oh, actually the reasons I'm doing these things are kind of, I'm, you know, it's pride or I'm worried about what, you know, so-and-so is going to think or, you know, I want people to kind of respect me, so I'm doing these. And, what it, you know, if you're doing the right thing but it's for the wrong reasons, right, wrong heart motives, what, what should you do? Should you stop doing it? Well, most of the time people would say, keep doing the right thing but change your heart. Because motives, of course, are, you know, are everything. Very, very important. Okay, I'm not going to say finally. I'm going to say kind of getting toward finally. <laughs> That's probably what Paul should have said in Philippians 3.1. But Paul alludes here to what is really, really important in life. Let me fire up my Kindle. Notice what he says in verse 8. He broadens this, the principles that he's been talking about to something wider. He says, Indeed, I count everything, not just my old religious works, I now count everything in my life as loss because of what? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. What is really important in life? The world is pursuing money and sex and power and we as believers can be pulled into the same value system. But Paul says, no, what really is of supreme value is knowing Christ. The word, he says it twice, in fact, in this thing about knowing Jesus. And the word know in the Bible is not just sort of an academic thing, like I know the way to drive to Meridian, or I know, you know how to do my job on the job. The word know in Scripture is a very relational, experiential word. 
Adam knew Eve and the result was Cain. So that you know, tells you something. It's, it's a very much a real deep relational word. Um, and Paul says, I'm a billionaire. I'm a spiritual billionaire. And I want to live in that reality more every single day. Because, you know, because to know Christ, I'm right with God. I know Christ. I have true worship. That's alluded to earlier in the passage. I have an inner life, a fellowship with God, a communion with Christ. I love that song we sang earlier about the going deeper, knowing and experiencing the presence of God. Sorry if I mangled the lyrics, but that's what it said. Uh, Great, great song. And Paul says, that's the most important thing in life. That's the richest thing. That's the, deep, that's the best thing I can get involved with. Everything else I count it as lost. Everything else is tertiary. You know the word tertiary? I love that word because it sounds cool. Tertiary. Say it with me. Tertiary. All right. It means you got not, it's not primary. It's not even secondary. It doesn't even rate to be secondary. It's, it's way down the list. In comparison to my communion with the Lord. We need to be Jesus-centered people. We want to be Jesus-centered people. We want to be experiencing ever-deepening communion with Jesus daily. And so today, tomorrow, the most important thing in my life is knowing Jesus. and Being in heart communion with Jesus. Now, there's going to be other things in my life. I've got my you know, work responsibilities and my family and you know, finances to manage and all the things that we all have to deal with. They all have their place, but they're of such lower importance than the focus on our walks with the Lord. I love this illustration that Tim Keller gives. He's, his point is that we are spiritual billionaires and we need to live like it. He says, imagine if you're a monetary billionaire like Warren Buffett or whatever. And you realize halfway through the day that you've lost a $10 bill. What do you do? Oh, no, you panic. You get all upset. No, you don't. You shrug it off. You're a billionaire. Now, imagine as, as Christians in, in your day, somebody has slighted you at work. The kids' grades are way below what you were hoping for. The car you found out needs major work. And things are really tight right now, so you're going to have to put it on plastic, but that's a whole other problem. <laughs> what are you going to do? Are you going to get upset? Are you going to shake your fist at God? Are you going to get all stressed out and toss and turn at night and snap out at other people? And, or, and we all do that. Well, let's just be honest. <laughs> or can we just realize, okay, those are problems, but, the, but they're nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. And the richness I have in Christ. I'm, I'm right with God. I'm walking with Him. I've got a fellowship with Him. I'm going to be with Him. The moment I die, I'm going to be in paradise. I'm going to let these things really bug me? Well, we shouldn't. Because that's of great value. Jesus says, same, kind of talking about the same dynamic. Abide in me. Remember that? John 15. Abide in me and my words abide in you. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Well, I don't know exactly yet. I'm still learning. But I want to. I want to know that. And I know there's just some days I feel like I can't solve any problems. I can't, there's almost nothing I can do. But I can abide in Jesus today. Why is this so important? Why is it so central? Why is it at the core of our riches in Jesus? Well, if you want peace, 
If you want serenity, that is only going to flow from your fellowship with Jesus. If you want significance, if you want a sense that your life has meaning and you're not just some totally meaningless grain of sand in the Sahara Desert, you know, you want that sense of meaning that only flows from your walk with Jesus and your identity in Him. You want a positive outlook today? You want hope? You want joy? And we could go on and on and on. They all flow out of that communion with the Lord. And so finally, I'll say it, just to close, again, what are you counting on for your standing before God? Hopefully we all realize it can't be our own works, our own worthiness in ourselves. It's only we count on Jesus and the forgiveness. We haven't earned it, we've received it. And of course, again, let's press on this week to really know Jesus, to go deeper. We're all at you know, different places and we have different experiences, but let's just say, Lord, we want to know you even, even more. And also, let's say yes to right living. God cares about how we live and obeying the commandments of Jesus. But again, for the right motives, with the right mindset. And finally, finally, let me just say, if there's anyone here who doesn't know these things, if, you're, if you are not certain of your standing with God, then please don't leave those doors before talking to me or any other leader here at the church to make certain of your relationship with God and getting that completely 100% right. Well, thank you for listening. Let me just say, Monica and I are hosting a vision lunch to talk about our ministry in the Middle East and answer many questions about Muslims and the Muslim world. We would be honored if you could join us. It's free, about 1230 over in the fireside room. Amen.